All right. Well, hey, we're about to jump into uh, week two of Revelation. If you're visiting us this Sunday or you're new, uh, kind of what we do every week at Calvary Church is we open up a book of the Bible and we go paragraph through paragraph through it. And last week together, we started that adventure in the book of Revelation. Jesus has not come back yet, so we're still here for another week. Um, so I'm going to jump into it in a minute. Uh, before I do, I'll ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Let me pray. <clears throat> Uh, Father, I'm grateful for this opportunity to come again and open up your word, and I'm thankful that you don't make us guess about who you are or what you have for us, that you have revealed it to us and you've preserved it for us so that we can know it and read it and examine it and try to understand it, and thank you for the opportunity we have in this months together <clears throat> to walk through this book and to try to see what the future holds and what our hope is linked to and who you are and how you're taking care of us and how you're providing for us. And so, Father, as we open up your word today, I pray that you will be uh, kind and good as you always are and encourage us, teach us, help us to understand it all for the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. <clears throat> well, the reality in life is that sometimes there are things that are coming in the future, but even though those things are coming in the future, they don't absolve us Big word. That's the only big word for the day, right? They don't absolve us of our responsibility now. Many times there's things that are coming in the future, but even though there's things coming in the future, they don't prevent us, they don't give us a hall pass from doing the things that we're supposed to be doing now. I remember when I was a young whippersnapper of 18 years of age, it's like 10 years ago or so, here in the amazing suburb of Trumbull, Connecticut, and I was looking ahead to the future. I had South Carolina on my mind when I was graduating from college. I had Furman University. I had sweet tea, fried chicken, and biscuits, right? I had this whole new adventure in front of me that I was excited about and looking forward to as I was finishing up high school. Uh, but the reality was that even though I had something exciting ahead of me that I was looking forward to, for some reason, my parents still thought I should mow the lawn. For some reason, my parents still thought I should walk the dog. They still thought I should help do dishes. They still thought that I should, man, Im imagine this, right? Like live in their house the way that they expected me to live in their house. Just because there was something that I was really excited about that was down the road that was in the future that I had an understanding about, there were still some things that I had to do in the present. What was yet to come did not let me avoid what I was supposed to do now. And like I said before I prayed, we're, we're kicking off this series in the book of Revelation. And so much of Revelation is about the future. So much of Revelation is about what is yet to come. But it's really interesting, before all of that, where the author of Revelation starts is by talking about the now. And by talking about the now and what he wants to remind the churches in that day of and you and me of is this, hey, before I start telling y'all all about what is yet to come, there are things that you are supposed to be doing in the moment, things that you're supposed to be doing in the now. And what is yet to come does not absolve you churches of what you should be doing now. He begins the conversation before we get to Antichrist, before we get to plagues, before we get to locusts like Apache helicopters, if that's your, 
That's your thought, right? Before we get to new heaven and new earth, we are in the present and what we're supposed to be doing as churches, what churches then were supposed to be doing. That lines up with the structure last week when we kicked off last week. We said there's kind of this overarching structure in Revelation 1.19 that sets the path for where the book is to be, right? This, the author, a guy named John, is told to write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those things that are and those that are to take place after this. And so before John starts talking about all the things that are to take place after this in the future, he's going to start by telling us, hey, here's some things that I've seen, and here's some things that relate to the now, to the present, to the moment. And many of those things that have to do with what the are in his time had to do with the condition of churches and their effectiveness. The condition of churches in that moment and how effective they were being and doing the very things they were supposed to be doing. And we're going to probably hit this a lot, and I'm going to hit it later in the sermon, and we'll um, hit it as we go through the next few months together. But uh, I've made the mistake of getting back on Twitter. I, I do think, I'm serious, I think it was a mistake. Because I follow a lot of evangelical leaders, a lot of church leaders, a lot of pastor leaders of different um, denominations, different positions, different thoughts, and every, not every time, so many times when I get on Twitter and different people are responding to different moments in our culture and what's happening and where we find ourselves, uh, I get discouraged and I get sobered. And I get um, a little disheartened about the condition of the local church Um, because it's not, it's a little rocky out there. And as I get disheartened about the condition of the local church and whether local churches are functioning effectively or whether we're getting distracted or missing the mark on all sorts of things, this is true. I get heartened by you guys. I get encouraged by this body. I am grateful for this body. I love this body, and I'm I'm honored that our family has been able to be a part of this body because I'm not disheartened by us. Because we've had to navigate everything that culture has had to navigate, and I'm glad for the way that we have honest conversations, robust conversations, but conversations have ultimately caused us to be unified. But here's the reality going forward. I don't want us to miss the mark. I don't want us to be ineffective. What, man, we all strive to be is an effective body of people. And just because we're going to be in a series that talks about what is yet to come, there are things that we need to be doing in the now that these churches need to be doing in the now. And the question is, for the next two or three chapters, what John's going to be saying is, hey, here's the things that are. There's some churches out there that he's going to write letters to, and he's going to say, y'all are knuckleheads. You're doing some good things well, but, but there's some things where you guys are just ineffective, and you're missing it, and you're distracted, and you're off mission, and you're off course, and he's writing to try to realign them. And as you and I walk through these things together, what we're going to have an opportunity to do every single Sunday is say, man, how well are we aligned with what God wants us to be doing in this now? With what the purpose for us is, what the opportunity for us is, what the privilege for us is in the now. Every week we're going to get to look in the mirror and we're going to get to celebrate and we're also going to get to press into, hey, how can we keep building upon the amazing and meaningful things that we're 
doing. <clears throat> Revelation 1 is our text. Um, if you got your Bible, if you got your device, it'd be awesome for you to open it up. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do, do two things this morning. We're going to first understand the structure of the text. And here's why I'm doing this, because this is a chance for us, like every series, to learn a book of the Bible. And this is a book of the Bible that's like, I was talking to somebody on the way in, it's like a treasure hunt. I think people come to Revelation like that Nick Cage movie. Uh, what was the Nick Cage movie? America, well, National Treasure, right? Where he's like looking at desks and he's reading the Constitution to find the secrets to crack the code that nobody else has cracked. I think we come to Revelation to try to crack the code and there's excitement about it. And my hope is that when we leave this series next year, maybe sometime, that this is an opportunity for all of us to have a familiarity with the book. And part of a familiarity with the book of the Bible means we got to understand the structure of the book of the Bible. And so uh, I'm not just, this isn't just filler to tell you the structure. The, the purpose of walking through the structure first of this first chapter is to be helpful. So that we'll all leave here with like, oh man, I know how that chapter is structured. That's good. We're going to walk through the structure of the book first. And then we're going to press into three big ideas from uh, this first chapter. So the structure of the chapter... And then three big ideas from the chapter. So I'm going to do something that in my nine and three quarters of a year here, I've never done before. So we're going to do it. Ready? I have read the whole passages before, but I've never had a stand. So in honor of friends of other traditions who have people stand when God's word is read, you get to get a little more exercise. So stand up. If you knock over your coffee, it's okay. Plenty of coffee has been knocked over before. I'm going to read chapter one. As I go, there's going to be a few things that I pull out and, and just explain, but we're going, to, we're going to go through it. Here is Revelation chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keeps what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who, was, who is and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now let me just kind of pause right there, right? When it talks about the one who is, and the one who was, and the one who is to come, that's talking about the Father. We read about in verse 5, from Jesus Christ, right? That's the Son. And then there's this uh, odd phrase in there, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. What are the seven spirits who are before his throne? Ain't nobody knows. Sorry, right? But here's some options of what it could be. Some people think that those seven spirits are actually these. Uh, later we'll read about uh, angelic spiritual beings that are worshiping the Father. Some people think it's a reference to that. Some people think it's just seven spiritual beings, maybe not. Other people, many people think that uh, in Scripture the number seven is this number of perfection. So when you see seven around something, it's something that is complete, that is full, and they think, well, because it's talking about seven spirits, it's trying to talk about a perfection of a spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. And so you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit, and there's this Trinitarian reference. Could it be? It could be. Do we definitely know? We don't. But that is where the grace and the peace John's writing to from these beings, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, 
Not being the first person who was ever raised from the dead, but firstborn often means the most significant, the most magnificent, the preeminent. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John... Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We talked about that last week. We saw Patmos. I want to expense a trip to Patmos to keep working on the sermon, but I haven't yet. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned. To see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That is Revelation chapter 1, and you guys can grab a seat. <clears throat> and as we think about that, that all that I've read, okay, so first question is, well, what's the structure? And it's important because Revelation contains a bunch of different type of literary genres. There's some prophetic, there's some, uh, you know, apocalyptic, and then one genre that is in the book of Revelation is the genre of an epistle, the genre, genre of a letter. And this first several chapters are in the genre of a letter. And so what's the structure of this first piece of the letter that's contained in chapter one? Okay, ready? If you got your app, if you got your bulletin, here's time to fill in the blanks. My daughter loves fill in the blank times. If we don't have fill in the blank times, I hear about it when I'm eating my bacon, cheese, bacon egg and cheese sandwich at Bagel King on the way home, right? So for those who love fill in the blanks, here's the first structural, uh, structural component. The first structural component of this letter is a greeting to the recipients of the message. That's in chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Greeting the recipients of this entire message contained in the book of Revelation, and particularly the recipients of the message contained in the first several verses. So who are the recipients? Well, verse 4 tells us, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Later on in another verse, down in verse 11, he gives us some further explanation of who these seven churches were. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These seven churches were 
actual, right, historical cities, which were in Asia, now in modern-day Turkey, and in each of those cities, there were churches. There were groups of Christians getting together in each of those uh, cities, in each of those churches, real people in real places, doing some things well, doing other things not well, people just like me, people just like you. We got a little map to help set this up where we are, and so... um, we saw before, right, right to the seven churches and Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia. So here are the churches. And interestingly, some people talk about, well, why is it laid out like this? Because there was this big road that connected these churches. And these were kind of like the main mail routes of the day. And so, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this happen. I hate, no offense if there's a U.S. postmaster in the room. One of the things that I am not good at is when there's that little sticky note on your door about a package was delivered and you weren't home, right? Because I don't know what to do. It, it perplexes me. I get confused. Am I supposed to wait till they re-deliver it or am I not? And so I sometimes wait, but then they just keep putting sticky notes and then I have to, right? Then it's like, come pick this thing up. And then I have to figure out, well, where am I supposed to pick it up? And I don't know. And I go one place, and they tell me to go to the other, and I spend five days trying to pick up this silly little thing, right? Well, if you wanted to pick up a package back in the day, you might have gone to one of these because these were kind of the main mail routes, the main trade routes. And interestingly, the loop was often like this. And so what he's saying is, hey, we're going to start in Ephesus. But then as you move north, if a messenger was to travel this loop, this was the order in which they would get to the seven churches. The recipients of this letter were the seven real-life churches. That's who the letter's written to. That's the first structural part. What's the second structural part? Well, in verses 9 through 11, we read them, were comments about how John got the content of the message for the seven churches. So he starts to say, hey, here's who I'm writing to. Then he moves on to say, okay, here's how I got what I'm about to tell the people to whom I am writing. And he explains that in verses 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit, verse 10, which refers to this vision-like He was in sort of some spiritual, supernatural uh, uh, environment, moment. I was in a spirit on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice, right? He, He explains the context of how he got this. Hey, I was having this vision, and I heard this voice, and that voice told me the things that I was supposed to write. And then the third structural piece is, okay, first is, hey, here's who I'm writing to. Second structural piece is, here's how I got the information that I'm delivering to those people. And the third structural piece is, here's the person who gave me the information to give to these seven people that I'm writing. Here's some information about the person that gave to me the information to write the way that I got it to give to the second people that I'm writing. And that's in Revelation 1, Chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 20. We've read all that. So structure is, I just want you to know this, right? So today, when you go to the diner and the waitress comes up to you and says, hey, would you like some more coffee? And by the way, what's the structure of chapter one of Revelation? You can say, 
yeah, if you'll just warm it up a little bit and maybe bring some more half and half, that'll be good. And by the way, the structure of the first chapter of Revelation is comments to the audience, comments about how he got the information to give to the audience, and comments about the person that gave him the information to give to the audience. Boom! I know you woke up in the morning thinking, I hope that I come to church and hear the structure of the first chapter of Revelation. But there it is. Now, we have a decision about where to go next. Uh, I've referenced it before. I used to love those Choose Your Own Adventure books where it's like, if you want to get in the hot air balloon, go to page seven. If you want to eat the turtle that's on the side of the road, go to page 29. I used to love those books. We got a, a pathway to say, okay, well, what do we do now? Smith, that was fine that you gave us a structure, like, okay, but what now? When we have a choice about how we're going to look at what we've read and the, what's contained within instruction. It's a choice of how we look at many things in life, okay? So I'm going to put this picture up here for you. Does anybody, <clears throat> except for our tech team, they don't count because they might know, does anybody, ha- if you get this, re- here's what I'm going to do for you. Have you, because we're a loving church. If somebody can guess right now what this is, I will give you free coffee at Calvary Church on Sunday morning for the rest of your life. (laughs) I will. I will. Okay. Anybody have any idea what this is? Uh, Well, whatever you guys all said, I don't think anybody said the right thing. This is a little tricky because it's colorful. And what the the scientists did was there's just some lighting that is making it colorful. But if you were to take an oak leaf and put it under a microscope, and blow the microscopic uh, magnification up super, super high and put some colors behind it, this is a colorized microscopic slide of an oak leaf. It is drilled down. Okay, can anybody tell what this next slide is? No free coffee on this one. What are you guys looking down on? How did you know? I mean, it's an expense, but free coffee for you all for a year. Okay. This is an Amazon picture of the Amazon. This is a picture that I took, right? I don't know how many miles into the Amazon jungle that we were, but we were in this plane. Myself and Kevin DeVos. Where's Kevin DeVos? Yes! He thought about throwing me out of the plane, but he didn't because he is a Christian man. We had an opportunity to take a bunch of us on a mission trip to Brazil, and Kevin and I, we we had the literally once in a lifetime, I hope nobody's here from the Brazilian government because I might get arrested, uh, to kind of sneak in to one of the indigenous villages where the missionaries we're partnering with lived and served, and it, um, man, literally, I am humbled Uh, at the opportunity we had to do that because it was amazing and uh, learned a lot and God taught me a lot. But as we looked down over the Amazon, this was sometime after the pilot told us what he would do if he (laughs) crash-landed. He explained to us how some pilots will try to go into the river. I'm like, okay. He's like, the problem with that is we'll sink and drown. I'm like, no. So then he said, but what I'll try to do is land us nicely into the trees. Okay, are you ready? I'm like, no, I'm not ready. But Here's the deal. When you look down at this, you don't see the microscopic image of the leaves. You see the top of the trees. When you look at this, you get the big picture of what's here. 
First slide was drilling down to the most finite detail, but when you drill down to the most finite detail, you miss the big picture. Big picture, you see what's all there, but when you see the big picture, sometimes you don't have a chance to explore and press into the tiny details. Why does that, what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about? We have a choice to make right now in chapter one, and I had a choice where I um, really thought through and prayed through through the week. We, we can either go back through and drill down every detail, right? We can talk about alpha, omega, I was, I am, who is to come, and there is meaningfulness and there is richness in that. And I have called out some of the ones that require particular exegetical attention. But, but if we do that in this chapter, if we drill down microscopically and spend the next however many minutes on each word, the, the danger is we might may, miss the this. And John, when he was under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote down words that have meaning and specificity that are important and have value, but at the same time, He's trying to convey the this to the readers. In chapter 1, he's trying to convey something like this, and if we miss the big structure, then we're not going to be set up well for the remaining chapters that we're going to look about in the churches in the book of Revelation. So today what we're going to do is we're going to take this view. There's going to be some details we don't drill down on. I would encourage you in your own time with God to do that. Soniclight.com. If there are phrases in here that I don't talk about that you want to know about, soniclight.com, soniclight.com, soniclight.com. Back in the 80s, marketers said if you said things three times, people will remember them, soniclight.com. It is a website with notes from one of my seminary professors that is amazing. He will take some positions that I won't take in this, but you can go on your own to explore it. So let's take the broad view and let's understand what's the big picture in this, right? In this first chapter with these first paragraphs, what's the big picture that John's like, bro, don't get so bogged down in the leaves that you miss this, because if you miss this, we won't be set up to talk about what else God has for us. Here's, so three connected big ideas, and here's the first one that's set out in verse five, okay? We're up 50,000 feet looking at the big idea of this. Uh, John, in his greeting, is describing Jesus, and he says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Ruler of the kings of the earth. One of the big picture things that is in this section that John wants his readers to desperately understand is this idea of Jesus being the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Here's the first big idea, right? We've talked about three structural ideas. Here's the first big idea that he wanted them to know and he wants us to know thousands of years later that King Jesus is in charge of everything and everyone right now. King Jesus is in charge of everything and everyone right now. That was important for the recipients of this message, the people and the seven churches to understand because in their moment, the person that was most uh, initially in charge of them was a ruler named Domitian. Domitian. And they're at a really interesting point. These Christians in these churches with families, with jobs, with pets, with bills, with wanting to learn more, with wanting to succeed, with wanting to do well in their marriage, with wanting to take care of their kids, with wanting to go on vacations, with wanting to have a life that was comfortable and made sense. These Christians were in a place where 
either the Roman governor Domitian had or was about to make the persecution of Christians an official royal rule of the empire. Before this, when there was Nero and others, there were pockets regionally of persecution of Christians. But, but what either has come or is about to come is the Roman government saying it is now the law that if you are Christian, we are going to punish you, we are going to arrest you, and we are probably going to kill you. And somewhere in their lifetime, many of these readers were probably going to undergo that with a person over them that, man, they're like, this isn't great. And what John is writing them to remind them of, hey, Jesus is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. King Jesus is in charge of everything and everyone right now. And even though they throughout their lives would probably have the same questions you and I have of, well, if he's in charge, he's not doing it the way that I would do it. Well, he's probably not. And that's an okay thing to process through, but he wants to keep bringing them back to. But you know what? You've got to remind yourself that Jesus, King Jesus, is in charge. He is sovereign. He is good. He is for you. He loves you. He died for you. He rescued you. He knows what's going on with you. And he, in this moment, is holding all things together because King Jesus is in charge of everything and everyone. And as a sovereign king, he knows what these readers were going through and he knows what we're going through. And John starts with making sure they got that big idea. Well, what does that have to do with me this morning? What does that have to do with you this morning? Well, this morning, if there's something you're anxious about, if there's something that you're worried about, if you feel like something in your life is spiraling out of control, then here's, I'm going to give you some more homework for today. I gave you homework last week. Somebody this weekend told me they remembered it. That was one of the highlights of my life. The others of you who were here last week are like, hmm, I wonder what he's talking about. Right? I gave you a little homework assignment. Uh, but here's another one for those of us who are like, man, I, things are spiraling out of control in my life. I have questions I don't know the answers to. I have a future that I don't know what's coming. I feel like everything under me is shifting. Then what I would encourage you this week, if that's where you find yourself, then every morning this week, what I would encourage you to do is wake up and read Revelation 1, chapter 1, verse 5. And remind yourself what that tells us, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on the earth. He's in charge. He's in charge. And he's good. And he cares for you. And he is able. And he knows. And what he's reminding us to do, what he's saying is this, hey, just trust me. I know you don't see it all. I know it doesn't make sense. Trust me. Because I'm the king of kings. And I'm in charge of it all. John doesn't leave them there. Because as they navigated these next years of their lives with the Roman governor hunting them down and trying to kill them and separating families and torture and exile and horrible things, he, he wants to give them this, this, this hope in the midst of that. 
That, yeah, look, Jesus is in charge, not always working according to our script, but let me remind you of something else. And, and here's the second big idea. <clears throat> he's in charge now, and then John's going to tell them what he's going to do in the future. And we've already said that. Verse 7, behold, behold, this word is like, yo, pay attention. It is the Greek version of look up here, look up here, look up here. Don't you remember that in elementary school when the teacher really wants you to tell something, right? Look up here, look, boys and girls, hands down, crisscross applesauce, look at me, look at me, right? This is like the Bible writer version of yo, guys, put down the phones, turn off the TV, mute the sports game, st- pay attention, right? This word literally means pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. This is referencing when Jesus comes to earth a second time. This is this idea of guys, people in the churches in that moment, in that time, who are going through things. I'm telling you that King Jesus is in charge, but I also want to tell you something. One day your king is going to come back. He came once to bring you into his kingdom. And that king, yo, pay attention, look up here. He is coming again with the clouds. And on that day, nobody will wonder if the story's true. Nobody will wonder, hey, that truth works for you, but doesn't work for me. No more will you wonder if your faith is worth it and if it's just all a fairy tale because you will see the king when he comes again. And there's a sobering comment here that, hey, for everybody who thought this was a joke and and the opiate of the masses, it's going to be like, bro, when Jesus comes back again, they're going to see him. And it's hard to deny something that you see standing in front of you. The idea of Jesus' second coming is woven throughout the scripture. I read as I was preparing for this, one scholar, I didn't count it, but said that one in every 25 verses in the New Testament talks about the second coming of Jesus. One in every 25 verses talks about this moment when the king comes back. The second big idea is this, that King Jesus is coming back in the future. King Jesus, people in churches, is in charge of everyone and everything. And King Jesus is coming back in the future. Throughout the book of Revelation, I said this last week, there are going to be a lot of times, because this is just my I want to shoot you guys straight. I could take this series a different way. I could just tell you, this is the way it is. There's no question. But that's not the way it is. There's a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of places in Revelation where it could be this and it could be that. And we have to learn to live with that tension. But there is one thing throughout the book of Revelation that there is no question about that we know for certainty. And what we know that is embedded in the Christian belief and faith and hope is that King Jesus is coming back in the future. And the bulk of Revelation, once we're done the seven churches, is about what's going to happen in the moments before he comes back, and then what's going to happen when he comes back, and after he comes back. Now, why does this matter? Interesting point. One every 25 verses could be true. I don't know. Could not be. I didn't count them. Maybe I'll go to Patmos and sit on the beach and count how many times in the New Testament it talks about Jesus coming back. Why does this matter? 
Here's why it matters. Yesterday, for me, was a great day. Sun was shining. I did some yard work. I wandered around Wilton, Connecticut for random reasons. I went to Stu Leonard's and I got vanilla ice cream. I got to hang out with my wife, who I adore. We made dinner together. I watched some of the Florida Gators. It was a good day. And there are days when they're just good days. Because there is, in the world around us, there is great beauty. There are moments of great beauty. There are moments of joy. There are moments in the world around us and the here and now of contentment. And the reality is, in the world around us, those are not the only moments that we encounter. Because there are also moments of great hardship and brokenness and discouragement and ashes and bad days. And the reason this matters is because what is proclaimed through this and screamed through this is that for the Christian, that brokenness, that darkness, that hurting, that longing, that the world isn't the way it should be, one day will have an end because the king is coming. There's this song written by a guy named Andrew Peterson. He wrote the melody, and Andrew Asenga wrote the lyrics that many times in my life, it's just, it's just uh, grabbed me. I will not sing it for you because you will think that the tribulation has begun. <laughs> but I'm going to read the lyrics for you. And here's what the lyrics of this song say. After the last tear falls, after the last secret's told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and bone, after the last child starves and the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just too hard, there is love. After the last disgrace, after the last lie to save some face, after the last brutal jab from a poisoned tongue, after the last dirty politician, after the last meal down at the mission, after the last lonely night in prison, there is love. After the last plan fails, after the last siren wails, after the last young husband sails off to join the war, after the last this marriage is over, after the last young girl's innocence is stolen, after the last years of silence that won't let a heart open, there is love, and then the song goes on to say, there is love, love, love. What I appreciate about that song is the poetic way in which it embraces the brokenness of this world about the pain that invades the illusion of security that some of us have built up, about the things that in your story some of you have navigated and the dark darkness and the despair, but what that song points to is said, hey, on the other side of that brokenness, there is something better waiting. On the other side of that emptiness and that hurt and that loss and the pain and the grief, that won't be the story that defines everything because there is something better waiting. There is something good in store because the king is coming. As I was preparing for this, I'm not a Lord of the Rings nerd. No offense to those of you who are. That's another sermon for another day. Written by a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien who hung out at pubs with a guy named Sirius Lewis who, together with other thinkers of that day, wrote amazing literature that, that in those stories proclaims the true story. 
And, and I came across this moment in the Lord of the Rings where these dudes are worn out. And they're on this journey that has battered them and bruised them and pushed them to their limit. And what Tolkien writes, trying to encompass this biblical idea that something good is coming, he, he talks about how one of the characters, there is clouds and there's darkness, and he looks up at the sky, and for just a moment, there's just a little pierce in the clouds. And he writes this, Sam then saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope Returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing, because there was a light and a high beauty forever beyond its reach. The shadow was just a passing thing, because there is a light and a beauty far beyond its reach because the king is coming. And to people in that day who literally were being dragged away from their families because of their faith, what they needed to understand deeply is, look, King Jesus is in charge. And one day, the king is coming. But... When they read those letters, when that person came to their churches with this letter from John and said, let me read this to you. As we're sitting here this Sunday morning, the king has not yet come. That is something in the future we're looking forward to. That is a reality, right? That, that, that is something that's yet to come. But what John wants to make sure these guys know, because this is what the rest of the two or three chapters come up is about. But hey, guys, that doesn't absolve you of your responsibility now. Because there's something that the king who is in charge, who is yet to come, has tasked you with doing, churches. And it doesn't absolve you of your opportunity and your responsibility and your privilege of doing that thing. And so that, that is conveyed in this incredibly uh, symbolic words that we're going to walk through here in the next second. But this last idea is about what does it teach us as a church? <clears throat> what is it meant to teach that church. Well, let's kind of, what are we supposed to be doing until the king comes again? Let's, let's read through this. Let's unpack it. And we're going to see a little bit about some symbols of, of a symbol of something and then the symbol of the person who's with that something. So let me just kind of read what John and God want these churches and these people to understand about what they're supposed to be doing until the king comes. Then, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstand, one like the Son of Man. Later on, we see in verse uh, 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. So, so we got some lampstands, we got some stars, and we got this dude who's in the center of it all, okay? What in the world does that mean, right? Lampstands, stars, some dude who's in the middle of it all. Well, well, let's unpack it. We know what the lamps mean because John tells us later on. He interprets this for us so we don't have to guess. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What he's saying is, look, 
The king is in charge, the king is coming, but the king has given you something to do. And I'm trying to explain this to you churches by telling you that the thing that you are supposed to do is linked with what a lamp does on a lampstand. The churches, these lamps represent churches because of the purpose of the lamp. Here is a picture of what a lamp might have looked like that these folks had at their house. You would pour some olive oil in this basin. You'd have a wick that came out of here. You would light the wick. It would give light, and if you would put it on a stand to elevate it so that the light could go higher and further. But the purpose of this What's the purpose of a lamp, of a light? What's the purpose of a lamp? To give light. To give light. And in this image, what is being said is, hey, seven churches of that day in Ephesus and Smyrga and Pergamon and Laodicea and Thyatira, all those places, guys, the king is in charge and the king will come back a second day. But until he comes, there's something that you're supposed to be doing. And what you're supposed to be doing is you're supposed to be a group of Christians gathered together, unified in Jesus, who are functioning like lamps in the community in which he has you. And what a lamp does is it gives light in the darkness. It brightens things. Light linked with truth, light linked with love. And what he's saying to these guys is, look, in a dark and broken world, churches then and churches now, I am, it's an already not yet kingdom. Jesus is king. He's ruling over everything, but he hasn't yet come back to earth to rule. And in that interim period, what he has done is said, I'm going to get a bunch of broken, messed up people together who love Jesus as a church. And through that broken, messed up people together who love Jesus as a church, I want to mediate my kingdom through them. I want the area that surrounds that church to reflect more of my kingdom until I come back because I am pushing my kingdom out ideally through them. And they are to be the lamps. They are to be the lights. They are to reflect the love of Jesus and the truth of the gospel in the communities in which I've placed them. Is that what churches are doing today? Is that what we as leaders, I as a leader, are leading us to do today? I'm not beating us up at all. Remember my first comment about how I am heartened when I think about Calvary Church. I'm heartened when I think about the stories of what you guys are doing to reach and impact and how we're trying to show love and we're trying to figure out. But there are so many things that distract groups of broken, messed up people who are joined together in Jesus from fulfilling our mission today. And I sometimes look at myself as a pastor and I'm like, what am I? Am I an event planner? I guess, sometimes. Am I a management consultant to design good systems in part? Am I a financial guy trying to look at revenue to expenses? I get, and we get all wrapped up, in, and they're not bad things. They're essential things, but we can't let important things distract us from the most important things. And I think sometimes in churches, not this church. I've always shot you all straight. I'm not, don't read into anything. I'm just talking locally, globally. In America, we, we end up fighting about whether we like the white thing that's on the communion table. Well, I think it should say, in remembrance of me, that'd be more sacred. Well, it's white, that's holy. Yeah, but gee, maybe we do... Per- and, and we spend hours of our lives distracted by things. 
When Jesus is thinking, man, the mediation of my kingdom has nothing to do with what type of tablecloth <laughs> is on a table. Guys, God's doing amazing things. Ah, God doesn't want me to say anymore. <laughs> where'd it go? No, seriously, where'd it go? <laughs> oh my gosh, where, oh wait, it's on my back. That's never happened in like 20 years of doing this, 18 years of doing this. Listen, man, God's doing amazing things, and we have an opportunity to build upon it, and the storms are coming. The storms are coming. And I don't even mean the storms from outside culture. I mean there's going to be another wave that wants to divide us. And there are going to be waves that come against this body that try to separate us into factions about things that don't ultimately matter linked with the gospel. And we're not going to let that happen. Okay? It's coming. And, and I do not want it to stop the good work that God is doing here and the way in which he's mediating his kingdom through us. Who's in the middle of those lampstands, right? What does that have to do with anything, right? The purpose is to be a lamp and a light, mediate the kingdom. In the middle of this is this language that talks about the Son of Man. It's Jesus. The, the Jesus amidst those lampstands is there, and there's this language that talks about a sash and his robe like a prophet, about his feet that are bronze, right? Either talking about how he has authority or he has purity. There's a sword coming out of his mouth that talks about how he is protecting the church and how his word is a tool to defend the church and to guard the church. And there's all this symbolic language, and there's this thing about, and in the midst of all that, he's holding these seven stars, these seven angels, they tell us, of the seven churches. What are the seven angels of the seven churches? I ain't got no idea because nobody has any idea. Angels is sometimes the same word translated messengers. It could be the messengers that took this letter to the seven churches. It could be an elevated reference to the leaders and the elders in each church. He's referring to them in a spiritual way. It could be some supernatural way that every church has this spiritual connection, right, of an angelic being that's part of them. I don't know if that's the case, but it could be the case, but we'll, we'll never necessarily know until we see Jesus what it means, but we will understand what the symbol, symbolism and the importance of it is this, that Jesus, whatever that thing is linked with the church, Jesus is holding that in his hand, which is meant to show us that Jesus is holding the church in his hand. He is protecting the church. He is controlling the church. He is guiding the church. And, and here's the third big idea of this. King Jesus cares about churches being effective lights until he comes, and he is connected to his churches. Jesus right now is in some unique way connected to this body of believers, to Calvary Church. Jesus in some way is present among us like he was present in those candlesticks. He is holding us, he is protecting us, and he is trying to control us if we will listen to him. Because he cares, because he cares that his kingdom be mediated properly, because he cares that people who don't yet know the truth know the truth. And he is coming back, but until he comes, he said, guys, I'm passing it off to you. I'm passing off the gospel work to further my kingdom, to love the way I want people loved in my kingdom, to proclaim truth the way I want truth proclaimed in my kingdom, to have the grass and the space around you more reflect my kingdom in truth and in deed. And I'm inviting you and challenging you and exhorting you to 
do it. But a lot of those churches in those days weren't doing it effectively because they'd gotten sidetracked on other things. And we're going to think about that next week. And he has messages in the next following weeks for each of these churches to try to get them back on track, to try to help them more effectively be a light. And there are things that we can learn on that to grow upon and to build upon the amazing things that he's already doing here. King Jesus is among us. What unites you and unites me if you're a believer in Jesus is Jesus. Is Jesus. The common ground of all of this, for those of us who believe in Jesus, and the fact that we didn't have any merit on our own, we had no goodness on our own, we had nothing to bring to Jesus to make us right with the Father, and so Jesus came to us and as a substitute was punished for our sin and because of our sin so that we could have forgiveness. That's what unites me to you. That's what unites the person behind you to you if they're Christian. That's what unites us together. And this morning we have an opportunity to remember and to celebrate and to affirm what unites us together. One Savior, one King, one death, one resurrection, one hope for one body to unify around. We're going to remember Jesus. We're going to affirm Jesus. Because, and I'm going to read to you as we set up the Lord's Supper, <clears throat> what was said to help churches in every setting in every century go back to the thing that's most unifying so that it doesn't slip out of their hands when they make other things, more important things. This is a way to regularly come back to this is what we believe. This is what we have in common. This is why we remain unified because of Jesus. I'll invite the worship team to come up here as I read these words. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And I'll ask the elders to come up who are going to be distributing this as well. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to have an opportunity now as a body to affirm and to celebrate what unites us together through this act of remembering what Jesus himself put in place. If you're not a Christian, what I'd encourage you to do is to take this time to reflect upon what are you looking to for your hope? What do you think about Jesus? Do you think that he is coming back? Do you think that he is the substitute? Do you think that there is some other way to be restored to God? What are you trusting in because you're trusting in something? And if, in fact... Jesus came back from the dead. Man, it seems a pretty compelling thing to listen to. For those of us who believe that Jesus has come back to, from the dead and put our faith in it, it's an opportunity for us to, as a body, remember his body. And so I'm going to invite you to take a few moments and prepare. And when you're ready and as you're ready, come forward. And then I'm going to ask you to go back to your seats and hold it. And I'll come back up once everybody has the elements and we'll take the bread and take the cup together. So when you're ready and as you're forward, come forward. Go back to your seats and hold the elements till I come back out and we take them together. <clears throat>